Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. My, oh my, what a week. Starting out with, uh, what, we switched the clocks, right? We got robbed of an hour of sleep. (laughs) And then, uh, of course, we've got this huge full moon. I don't think it was, maybe it was last night. All I know is my daughter woke up in the middle of the night. She's like, why is it so bright outside? And my wife was explaining it's because the moon is super full. It is a super moon, by the way. So she wasn't exaggerating. And then we have Friday the 13th coming up this week. And, uh, well, I don't know. Take a look at the news headlines. Uh, What was it, about a 2,000-point drop in the Dow Jones uh, average uh, first thing this morning when when the stock market opened? may have been more. It may have been more like 2,500. There's... uh, there's a war within the oil markets, Saudi Arabia versus Russia. I didn't notice that at the pump, by the way, this weekend. I had some traveling to do and uh, did not uh, seem to pick up on uh, any break coming to the consumer who's uh, getting the, the end result of all that oil. Uh, what else? So oh, the coronavirus, eh, still hearing stuff about that. I don't know. There's some pretty crazy stuff going on. How do you keep uh, sanity in the midst of it all? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's uh, among the things we're going to be discussing in this hour. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, about what the deadliest threat is posed by the coronavirus. We'll also talk about, with all the chaos going on, what's the best thing that you and I can do in response? And actually, Paul Rosenberg has... I think one of the best takes that I have seen on this, and it's very unconventional, which is kind of what I would expect from him, but it makes a tremendous amount of sense. I'm going to save that for last. It's it's like dessert. I promise it will make your day. Oh, we'll also spend a little bit of time this hour talking about how easy it is to become a federal criminal. You, you know, you may think, well, that only happens to people who go out and do bad things. Oh, no, my friend. Mike Chase has written an excellent piece about uh, about all the different ways that Uncle Sugar can rein you in if he happens to set his sights on you. And that is uh, that is a spooky, spooky thing to consider. So let's begin, though, with something that uh, that just it, this caught my eye. You're going to say, of course it did, Brian, because it had to do with sex. No, it's it's actually the, the hashtag Me Too movement. And, and, and yes, sex is a part of this. Uh, the conviction of Harvey Weinstein on sexual assault charges. You know, there's, there's this weird dynamic that is now taking place in society. On the one hand, we celebrate everybody should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as it's with somebody else who's consenting. Why, you know, anything goes. But then you get the, the hashtag me too crowd which says well but if 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 at any moment a woman changes her mind you know say that uh, oh i don't know she paid a visit to harvey weinstein's casting couch and harvey weinstein did what he does to uh you know to allow starlets to earn their their uh, casting but then she changed her mind and said you know i didn't feel, i didn't feel good about that it made me feel cheap made me feel like he was just using me and so they turn around and they say rape now, I'm not trying to defend Harvey Weinstein. I hope you'll understand. But but now there's this very rigid set of rules coming up. Well, you know, what we ought to do is we ought to have signed contracts. We ought to have people asking permission every step of the way. May I hold your hand? Yes. May I uh, go ahead and apply some pressure as I'm holding your hand? May I just give a gentle squeeze to show I love you? Yes, you may. You know, consent at everything. May I kiss you? Yes. For longer than one second. 
No. Okay, so we know the boundaries. Well, Carolyn Monahan, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. Actually, I think this was originally published in uh, Mercator.net. She is showing that there is a very interesting unintended consequence coming about, and it has to do with the rules of intimacy coming full circle thanks to the woke hashtag MeToo culture and Harvey Weinstein. Here's how she describes it. She says the conviction of Harvey Weinstein at his recent trial on counts of third-degree rape and sexual assault was evidently a shock to him, but it's also very sobering for sexual libertarians in general. The field of uncommitted sex is now full of risks and safety seems to lie in a new revolution. She says the rewriting of the sexual script over the past decade or so before hashtag me too, there was lots of rape or campus rape culture and new rules for consent. Now it has reached a point of definition that should scare a lot of ordinary, not so powerful men. As Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. said after the verdict was announced, quote, this is a new day. Rape is rape whether the survivor reports within an hour, within a year, or perhaps never. It's rape despite the complicated dynamics of power and consent after an assault. It's rape even if there is no physical evidence. End quote. And Carolyn Monahan says, and it is rape even if a woman continues to have a sexual relationship with the rapist after the rape or after two rapes, whether there's force or not. Rape is whatever a woman says it is. Now, the jury in the Weinstein trial deliberated long over the testimonies of his two main accusers, Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann, who'd maintained relationships with the once celebrated Hollywood producer after the attacks. They were particularly exercised over Mrs. Mann's case, who had a more intimate or Ms. Mann's case, who had a more intimate relationship with Weinstein even after he had raped her twice. In the end, reports the New York Times, the jurors gave little weight to this fact and decided to instead focus narrowly on whether Mr. Weinstein had broken the law at the time of the incidents. It was a one instant, not a relationship that we were analyzing, one juror told the Times. Being in a relationship, said another juror, doesn't preclude her right to withhold consent, regardless of the behavior before or after. However, Carolyn Monahan points out, what happened to Ms. Mann was not first-degree rape because there had been no forcible compulsion. Still, it was a crime earning Weinstein a prison sentence. So she says, yes, it's looking much easier to be convicted of rape. And those sex instructors who've been coaching young people in the game of consent, well, they must be the heroes of the hour because the rules of intimacy have become very demanding. So demanding, though, that it hardly seems safe to have sex at all outside of marriage. And even then, it might be a strange sort of intimacy hedged about with fear and mistrust. As one of the Weinstein jurors pointed out to the others in relation to Ms. Mann's case, a person can be married and raped by their spouse. Now, already, this kind of mistrust is darkening the future of young people. Adolescent boys who have been taught by popular culture that they have a right to consensual sex are now confused about how to relate to girls at all resentful that their questions are not answered squarely, and withdrawing from friendships with girls. Now, she says this might prevent some sexual activity, but it does not augur well for happy, committed relationships when the time comes. Carolyn Monahan says the sexual revolution offered a generation or two wide sexual license. Hashtag Me Too and now the Weinstein trial have narrowed the scope for casual, experimental, not to say exploitative sex dramatically and this is where she she just nails it 
we seem to have come full circle. The safest sex now would not be conducted with a pill and a condom and a yes or no at every step, but within a stable, loving marriage, preceded by a chaste adolescence and courtship and supported by a culture that values those things. Ho, ho, snap. Too difficult, she sa- she asks? Well, just think of the alternative. A new war of the sexes that poisons the whole of society. Now, look, I know it's it's not a popular thing. Suggesting self-control is always going to bring the the anger out in a lot of people. How dare you suggest such a thing? That's, that's unnatural. That's that's just inhuman. That's that's a mental dinosaur's way of thinking. And yet it brings to mind an observation that Joe Sobrand made many, many years ago about how we didn't have to talk about safe sex back at the time when it was, for the most part, confined to marriage. Now, yes, I look, I understand. There were also people who would flout the traditional standards. But can we at least agree there was a time when the standard was you saved yourself for marriage? As Carolyn Monaghan puts it, um, you had a chaste adolescence. You didn't go fool around. That was considered a low-class thing to do. To be the guy that knocked up, you know, the girl down the street, was that was a low-class thing to do. And for her, it was devastating as well. She would be sent to live with an aunt until the baby was born. The ch- child would be adopted out. And it was the kind of thing that families wouldn't talk about. Now, look, I'm not suggesting the guilt and shame is the healthy way to do things, but I'm saying the expectation was you would behave yourself, you would reserve sexual activity for that stable, loving marriage relationship. And the reason it worked is because it required accountability for one's sexual behavior. Men couldn't go around siring kids willy-nilly and, you know, and then just abandoning them when it was convenient. They had to be responsible. And so the responsible thing was stay pure before marriage to the best of your ability. Save yourself for marriage. And when you did get married, you uh, you practiced perfect fidelity. Now, look, I'm perfectly aware how, how utterly old fashioned this sounds, but it doesn't change the fact that it worked. It kept people from having to deal with unwanted pregnancies and unwanted diseases and unwanted drama that the sexual revolution brought along with it. I don't know. Make of it what you will, but uh, that's a great piece from Carolyn Monahan. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. By the way, here's the phone number, 801-331-8113. I am ready to start taking some calls here. I want to share with you this article from spikedonline.com about how to become a federal criminal. And there's a great story behind this. Back in 2014, Mike Chase, a white-collar criminal defense lawyer, set up the wildly successful A Crime A Day, I'm sorry, it's at A Crime A Day, Twitter feed. And this Twitter feed draws attention to the overwhelming volume of criminal laws on the books by highlighting some of the craziest ones. For instance, did you know it is an imprisonable offense in the U.S. to clog a toilet in a national forest? I know, the, the, the questions, really, why, 
Why is there a toilet in a national forest in the first place? I don't know. How about this one? Writing a letter to a pirate. That can land you in jail. Using a falconer's falcon to make a film that isn't about falconry. All righty. Well, his Twitter feed has now become an illustrated book, How to Become a Federal Criminal. And Spiked caught up with him to ask about these strange laws and what they mean for liberty. One of the first things they asked him is, what are your favorite unusual crimes? And, and the, the one he went right to was he said, I love food crimes. For instance, in the United States, you can't sell ketchup that is too runny. Okay, this is not just a suggestion. This is on the law books as a crime. That means your ketchup cannot run faster than 14 centimeters within 30 seconds at 20 degrees Celsius. And it's not only a crime, it's a metric system-based crime. That's going to land a lot of us in jail, right? Because we still go by the whole, whole imperial standards. Wait a minute. How many hectares and how many degrees Fahrenheit? <laughs> anyway. Now, he says, I like animal crimes, too. It's not that I like to see people get hurt, but he says these crimes are all based on really stupid or gross things people have done to animals over the years. So he says, I like to think about people who tried to ride a manatee or who tried to shoot a fish from an aeroplane. He says, I've always been of the view that if you can shoot a fish from an aeroplane, you should be able to keep the fish. We shouldn't arrest those people for being a good shot, but the feds want to lock those people up. So he's asked, well, where do these crimes come from? And Michael Chase's answer is, I think they come from three places. You have garden variety crimes, which we all want to prohibit. Things like murder, fraud, all that kind of stuff. Then there are laws that come from regulators, people who are not elected, people that you would never know if you walked by them on the street. They pass rules and they don't have to go through the legislature. They just pass rule after rule after rule. Congress will pass a broad law that says any violation of their regulations are a federal crime. And so without any action by the lawmakers, regulators end up effectively creating law, and we end up with hundreds of thousands of things that are prohibited. Now, he says the final category is Congress making reactive laws. When someone is very afraid of some very bizarre thing happening, what do they do? They lobby Congress to get a law passed. But the flip side of that is old concerns that are no longer concerns. But just because nobody ever goes through to clean up the books, we have all these old laws that hang around that, yes, you can still get hooked up for. For instance, the U.S. used to have some big concerns about pirates and and piracy. So we have a large number of pirate crimes on the books. Now, certainly there is piracy in other parts of the world, But we just don't have a lot of pirates anymore around the coast of the United States. And there are very few pirate prosecutions. But there are some statutes that are so vague, they still result in prosecutions. For instance, there's one federal statute that says it is a federal crime to board a ship that is about to arrive arrive at shore, but hasn't yet. That's all it says. That was designed to prevent pirates. Passed back in the late 1700s or early 1800s. But in the early 20, in the early uh, 2000s, there were some Greenpeace activists prosecuted for violating that statute because they boarded a ship during one of their protests. Now, Spiked then asks Mr. Chase, which of these laws are regularly catching people out? And I don't know if this one will surprise you. I was a little bit surprised. He says the U.S. gets very concerned about the movement of money for obvious reasons. 
And one of the laws listed in the book is that it is a federal crime to leave the country with more than $25 worth of nickels. Did you get that? If you try to leave the country with more than $25 worth of nickels, which are the most useless coin in the U.S., that's against the law. But in terms of the movement of money, there are people who are detained and charged every day at the ports for having what the government decides is simply too much cash. And it doesn't even have to be cash that's intended for any illicit purpose, like drug money or to support terrorism. If the government decides you have too much cash and you didn't tell them about it, welcome to the criminal justice system, because that's a crime. So next, Spike asks him, well, what's the danger of having all these crimes on the books? And Mike Chase says, well, we really have to ask ourselves, how much power do we want to give the government? Because when the government gets blanket authority to pass laws that prohibit all sorts of conduct, that should be a scary thing for anybody. He says there's a sense right now that more people are being prosecuted for political reasons or over political disagreements. When you have virtually limitless laws, the people in power, if they disagree with you, can single you out and then pick the crime later. He says also most of us expect to know when we're committing a crime. The law presumes that you know the law. In fact, we often hear the phrase, ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance of the law, rather, is no excuse. Well, he says that idea developed at a time when there were maybe a dozen or so federal crimes. Are you sitting down? Well, now there are more than 300,000 federal crimes, meaning the law is inherently unknowable. And not just for us, but also for the judges, for the prosecutors, and for the enforcers of those laws. That means it's constantly in a state of flux. And that's a scary thing because we just take it on faith that uh, I'm not breaking any law. And you have vast numbers of agencies that have various purviews. So the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, for example, all these agencies that exist in the executive branch of the U.S. government have rulemaking authority. And nobody pays attention to what they're doing. And not only does the bureaucracy get to pass limitless rules, but also when those rules are tested in court, The courts defer to the agencies in interpreting them. This is something we saw in great clarity when the Bundys got crosswise with the BLM. They fought them in court, and the BLM, if they got smacked down in court, would simply change their rules and come back, and the court would say, well, the law says this because these are the guys who make the rules. You will never win a game like that. Crazy. The point here is nobody can keep abreast of everything that's prohibited in the U.S. And you end up with all these criminal rules that weren't passed by Congress, but were passed by people who you can't vote out of office and whose names you don't even know. Now, what does this mean for liberty? Well, Chase says liberty was core to the founding of the United States, but it's something we've ceded year after year. And while Americans can do things that the rest of the world thinks are inherently dangerous, there are also a lot of things you can't do that aren't inherently harmful. There are so many victimless crimes, and when, every, when virtually every aspect of your life is regulated by government, what does liberty mean anymore? It becomes a vanishingly narrow concept. And then he's asked the question, well, what problems do these laws create for the courts? And Chase says, well, they don't really create as many problems for prosecutors as they should. In fact, he says, I actually think they embolden prosecutors. When you have broad, sweeping and vague laws, prosecutors can put you into the criminal justice system at will. Yes, in the United States, the burden of proof is on prosecutors, not you. But the laws actually end up flipping the burden. 
Now you've got to find a way to say that the law they're using doesn't apply to you or that the facts don't fit that law. And juries are increasingly asked not to just decide if someone committed the crime, but also to decide if something is a crime at all. So in writing this book, How to Become a Federal Criminal, an illustrated handbook for the aspiring offender, he says, what I've been trying to do is to get America to laugh at and ridicule the people who have allowed this system to develop. And he says it will be through our collective mocking of the people in power that we can finally change this. I'll have a link to the article. I'm thinking I may actually have to, uh, to spring for a copy of uh, Mike Chase's book. But there's a great lesson there. Don't let the lesson escape you. All right, we got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after news headlines. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. And, and thank you so much for, for being part of our audience. Listen, if you are finding anything of value, I know that sounds really vague and, and like, you know, if you sort through this and something strikes your fancy, well, vote for Joe Biden. No, wait, that was, I just stole his campaign speech. But you get my point. If there's something of value here and, and you find that this is, is worth your time, I would just ask one thing. Please open your mouth. Tell your friends. Let them know that, uh, hey, this is something that might be worth checking out. I'll grant you, it may not be for everybody. But if they give it a chance, well, you know, they might be pleasantly surprised. I've been uh, very intrigued with, with this idea that uh, there, there is such a thing as national guilt. And, and i got to tell you, this is something that weighed on my mind back in December when my family and I traveled to Germany to spend Christmas with my daughter and her husband. And, you know, maybe it's... Maybe this is Godwin's law, you know, but, well, you know, Germany, that's where the Nazis are doing their thing. And, and it was fascinating to, to travel and to, to see the various sites, including, you know, old World War II installations and things like that. And there is definitely, I think, a sense of, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I want to say it's national guilt. It's not like everybody in Germany walks with their heads held low, but, uh, but it's, it's very clear that uh, there, there's no uh, reminiscing or no sense of nostalgia for the way things were under the Third Reich. And it kind of, I, I, I admit, I was looking around to, to see, does anybody have, you know, feel like they, they need to explain themselves? Because most of the people we were interacting with had absolutely nothing to do with either bringing the Third Reich to power or, for that matter, supporting it when it was in power. In fact, truth be told, there were quite a lot of Germans who uh, really didn't have a choice. By the time they realized, whoa, these guys are off their rockers, it was too dangerous to speak out. And those brave ones who did usually paid a pretty dear price. But, you know, we have something similar that's going on here, and, and that's the idea of the 1619 Project, or, well, you know, there's that Confederate um, memorial or statue or whatever, we must not only erase all these things, but you, though you had nothing to do with it, you never owned slaves, I never owned slaves, but because of your skin color, 
you should hang your head with shame, and you should constantly abase yourself before those who may have had ancestors perhaps of a different skin color or perhaps who may have been slaves. I don't know. It sounds a lot like it sounds like a, a control freak's dream. You have to feel guilty. You have to do what I tell you. David Gordon, writing for the for Mises.org, talks about how national guilt is really a myth. And he says in his article back on February 22nd, he discussed a very important book from Susan Neiman called Learning from the Germans. And Susan Neiman maintains that owing to the crimes of the Nazis, Germans have a moral obligation to work through, her words, the past. They must acknowledge their responsibility for these crimes, even if they themselves had nothing to do with them. And he says, in like fashion, white Southerners today must acknowledge responsibility for the crime of slavery and after the end of legal slavery, the continuing oppression of blacks. Now, he says several readers of my article raised valuable points in their comments. And he says, I want to discuss one of these in my article today. But he says, before doing so, I want to bring to the fore some remarks by H.D. Lewis in his article, Collective Responsibility. This was published in February of 1948, and this article was the basis of his criticism of Neiman. But he says Lewis raises some other important issues in the article that help answer some of the questions that readers had. For instance, H.D. Lewis distinguishes sharply between moral and legal responsibility. In fact, he says the etymology of the word responsibility suggests that it means liability to answer. This being, of course, liability to answer to a charge with the implication that if the answer is not satisfactory, a penalty will be incurred. This is certainly the meaning of responsibility in the legal sense. Lewis proceeds to say that in this sense of responsibility, there are some occasions at any rate when we share our responsibilities with others and are implicated in their wrongdoing. Now, what exactly does that mean? Okay, here's Lewis's explanation. Quote, Normally, the purpose served by the imposition of penalties requires the penalties to be inflicted on persons presumed to have offended and on no others. But he says there are, however, exceptional cases where expediency requires proceedings to be taken against a group as if it were an individual entity. No account will then be taken of the guilt or innocence of individual members of the group. Suffice it for the present to note that as a device for the achievement of practical ends, we sometimes have to accept collective responsibility. Now, this is fully acknowledged in law where a parent may in some respects be held to account for the conduct of children or where a society or corporation may be proceeded against as a single entity or person, end quote. But he says, Lewis goes on to say, extending the canvas still wider, we have the imposition of sanctions against a whole nation in the interest of international order. Reparations and similar measures adopted against an aggressor nation nature may be mentioned here. But he says Lewis has misgivings about these measures, but soon arrives at his key thesis. These measures may be expedient, even though they lacked perfect justice, justice because they penalize the innocent. Here's how H.D. Lewis says it, quote, there will always be some intermingling of justice with injustice in human relations under any conditions we can anticipate. But he asks, what does this prove? Does it prove that the innocent share in the wickedness of the guilty, that the former are morally answerable for the ill deeds of the latter? Surely not. The question needs only to be stated plainly for us to see how foolish it is to allow our view of moral responsibility to be affected by imperfections in the ways in which members of society must deal with one another. End quote. 
Now, the author here, David Gordon, says, in his opinion, Lewis is, as Murray Rothbard would have said, weak on the reparations question. But he says, I'm not going to pursue that here. He does say it is exactly this view of moral responsibility that Neiman challenges. And he says that was the crux of his disagreement with her in his earlier article. By the way, I will have a link to this in the show notes, so I encourage you to check it out. He says this leads to one of the issues raised in the comments on that article. There was a commenter who wondered whether Neiman, in fact, supports the ascription of individual moral guilt to Germans and white Southerners who themselves committed no crime. The commenter thought that it wasn't evident from the quotations from uh, from Neiman's book that she thinks this. Now, she could be clearer about the matter, but she does hold the position that David Gordon ascribes to her. She amalgamates shame and guilt, and it's some combination of these that she thinks Germans and white Southerners ought to have. She says, for example, guilt, it's been argued, is directed inward, and no one need know if you have it. Shame, by contrast, is what you feel when you see yourself reflected through the eyes of others. And you cannot bear to let that image stand. To overcome shame, you must actually do something to show others you are not inevitably caught in your or your forebears' worst moments. Now, she also says, I doubt that guilt can be entirely separated from responsibility. What makes a young white man from Jackson, Mississippi, feel responsible for this corner of the Delta? Isn't it at least partly the fact that members of his own family had been the sort of softly angry racists whose views helped shape the world that would acquit a child's killers. That's reference to the acquittal of Emmett Till's murderers. One final citation. She says, shame hurts, guilt hurts. They are not emotions we willingly feel. We seek admiration from the outside and peace from within, and we have powerful ways to deflect everything that threatens them. Rather than acknowledging our complicity in something shameful, we forget with remarkable ease That is why memory is vital. Now, David Gordon says it's because of her views about guilt and shame that Neiman demands the the extraordinary measures that he addressed in his earlier article. So Germans, you know, she would say, has a uh, have a moral duty to dwell on the sins of their ancestors. And so do white Southerners on what their own ancestors did as well. He says, in the portrait of the artist as a young man, Stephen Dedalus says, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. But for Ms. Neiman, he says, history is a nightmare to which she wants others to return. Now, I'm a simple guy, which is probably why I tend to come up with simple answers for things like this. But I don't think it is fair to, to judge a person or hold a person to account for something in which they absolutely had no say. It's collectivist thinking. And I reject collectivism in all of its insidious forms. The idea that, well, you know, white Southerners have this collective guilt because, you know, they tolerated slavery longer than their northern counterparts. No, if you didn't actually own slaves, and I don't think there's anybody around today who owns slaves then you weren't participating in it. You had no say in the matter. And, and to, to just illustrate this, it would be equally as, as stupid to say that, well, you know, violence is much higher within inner city black communities. Therefore, all black people everywhere should feel guilty about uh, the uh, violent lyrics and rap music. See how stupid that kind of a blanket assumption is? So no, hold people accountable for their individual behavior Hold them accountable for what they actually have done that has caused harm or fraud to another person or their property. Leave everybody else alone. Now, of course, this is uh, probably, you know, barking up the wrong tree 
if you're talking to control freaks who want us to feel guilty so they can manipulate us, you know, the way that they want to. I say reject the guilt. Just tell them, no thanks, I'm not accepting any new guilt today. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Here's the phone number. If you want to use it, you better get on it. This is our last segment, 801-331-8113. I know there's a lot of talk right now. In fact, it's almost all-consuming, the talk about coronavirus. What will it do? What is it doing right now? Is it responsible for the drop in oil prices? Is it responsible for the volatility in the economic markets? And I don't have a good answer for you, but I will tell you for the record, I am more concerned about the overreaction to coronavirus than I am about the actual illness. And I say that with the understanding. There's a lot here that isn't known, but it's it's that we, we are not living out Stephen King's The Stand just yet. So simmer down, rat man. You know, we'll we'll all be uh, gathering to Boulder, Colorado and Las Vegas soon enough. But I don't think this is it. I don't think we're quite there yet. By the way, there's a terrific article on Reason.com by JJ or JD to Seal rather uh, about how coronavirus, the most deadly threat that it poses right now, is to your liberty because it's the healthiest thing that has happened to government power in a long time. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, when when you start hearing words like pandemic, outbreak, you know, and and uh, epidemic. People are willing to, to set aside normal considerations for their uh, for their liberties and start deferring to experts, government experts who have the answers. And if there's anything government loves, it's a serious crisis. They're not going to let it go to waste because it's an opportunity to do things that they could not do before. Why? Because fear makes us malleable. So be very cautious about what people are suggesting in response to this. Let's nationalize health care. Let's let's raise taxes. You know, another, you know, billion or so here. Eight, I think it's eight billion, actually, that they're saying that so government can fight this as if it's the only means by which it can be fought. Slow down, take some deep breaths and do not allow yourself to be stampeded. Caller, welcome to the show. Hey, buddy. Hey. That's what, that's what pisses me off. If this is not a big deal, why are we spending all of this money on, on counteracting it? Tents, quarantines, all these Coast Guard keeping these boats offshore. Yeah. You know, I mean. Okay, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong for thinking this, Rob. Is it, is it possible that government is just using this as a chance to flex for us? Look, look how decisively I'm handling this. One passenger has a health issue on a cruise ship down in Long Beach, and thousands of people now are being held or are being, you know, delayed because of one person. That's not even a confirmed threat. Well, this stuff, this this virus is, uh, it's going to take its course. I mean... It's just like the if if it's just like the common cold or the flu. Let's have government shut down all the stuff that they're doing. Let's stop wasting the money. Right, right. All these states, state of emergency, state of emergency. It's just another way for states to get money from the federal government. Let's stop all that nonsense. Let it take its course. Let it kill who it kills. And 
be done with it. Okay, Ayn Rand. No, no, I get your point. It's, you know, I think there's a lot of pretending. Oh, no, we're on this. We are on top of it. When, when really they aren't. And, and they can't be. Now, that doesn't and, mean and that we shouldn't. Is, you, got, you got these people that are falling for, these, and then the Democrats, but they'll, they'll create this two-party system. Democrats will say, oh, the Republicans didn't do enough to counteract it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big show. Spin it for advantage. No, you, you nailed it. And I mean, come on, China. China has cracked down harder than any U.S. official has suggested, at least so far. How, how was that working out for them? Well, you know, I, I kind of think this is, this, I think it's a big uh, thing with China because they're fighting against all the tariffs and all the trade deals that are going. As well as protesters. You know, they have their protesters, you know, that are getting uppity. It's not that easy street for China anymore. No. Like it's been for the last 40 years. And, uh, you know, there was a guy I watched this morning. They said China's 900% of their GDP right now. Wow. 900%. That, that, that's shut it down. It's, it's, you're bankrupt, basically. I mean, maybe they made a big deal out of this to, to collapse the economy globally to get caught back up. I don't know. I just... I think no, that's if a fair, it's not fair that question. Deal, stop spending my money on. Stop pissing away my tax dollars. That's what I say. Okay. Hey, thank you so much for the call. Um, JD to Seals article says, look, like all crises, this COVID-19 pandemic will pass, hopefully with a minimum of illness and death. But he says, here's the danger. In its wake, it will leave a residue of laws, spending and precedents for future government actions that will not depart. So when this has gone the way of, uh, you know, H1 or H5N1, I can't remember. We've had so many of these scares, swine flu and SARS and so forth. When it goes the way that those things have gone, what we're going to have left behind is a ratchet effect in which each crisis sees government, uh, you know, when the crisis is over, it'll shrink a little, but it will never go back to its pre-crisis status. I think it's Robert Higgs who said, thus crisis typically produced not just a temporarily bigger government, but a permanently bigger government. So even after the public panic retreats, the politicians' calculations subside, and COVID-19 becomes more knowable and treatable, we're still likely to be left with the permanent swelling of government caused by the latest crisis. No one's saying bury your head in the sand. We're just saying be aware of this and, and, and keep some perspective. <clears throat> Let me share with you something, though, I think is, is a very positive way to look at this. This is from Paul, uh, Paul Rosenberg, and it's simply titled Forward. And he says, look, the world is presently in a state of disturbance. More importantly, though, the minds of men and women worldwide are facing unexpected turbulence, meaning that their levels of alertness and awareness have risen. And, and the point here is to some ex- significant extent People are not operating on autopilot right now. Now, he says, those of us who've been grasping at a vision of a better world have one meaningful direction right now, and that is forward. He says, to be specific, I'm talking to people who would like to imagine a better world rather than just finding a comfortable slot in some existing regime. Voluntarists, Bitcoiners and crypto advocates, scientists who care more about science than position, spiritual and religious people who care more about benevolence than doctrine, People who want to produce rather than just skim, homeschoolers and nonconformists of a dozen flavors. 
He says, this is the moment that needs us. In the midst of fear and chaos, people need a clear, positive, and future-oriented voice. Think about what he's saying. Descending into fear is not going to help the world. And he says we shouldn't contribute to it. If we're concerned about tragedies from the coronavirus, well, then let's put our energies towards preventing them and healing them, not affixing blame to perceived enemies. Moreover, he says, stirring people up to fear, we're directing their energies away from prevention and healing. We're hurting them, even if they're all too willing. But he says this is one of those moments where we have to be clear on who we are. The answer with millions of personal variations is that we're people who want to move forward to something better. And he says, this is our time to be clear and active. See, the more confused the world becomes, the more people need clear voices and clear directions. All of us have been young, confused, misdirected, badly taught, and internally conflicted. So this isn't about being a better class of humans than everyone else. Those of us who by luck, work, time, and circumstances, or by some combination of them, have separated ourselves from confusion and misdirection, we owe those less fortunate a clear and positive vision. Now, he says we're not going to be flawless in this, of course. We're a long ways from full growth, and none of us has a complete handle on the truth. Nonetheless, it remains our job to show the troubled world what forward looks like, and there's no one to do it but us. So uh, what if you gained? What if you have to give is clear analytics? If what you've gained or what you have to share is clear analytics, then give that to the world, but focus it forward. Show the world solutions. Show them a better way than they've known. If you found a better way to live, however partial, show it. Talk about the better world you're building and display it. Let the people of this world see a way forward. If you found technologies that move the race forward, be proud to show them. Illustrate their value, their direction, and the kind of world they'll help create. Our job is not to join in the panic. Our role is to fix, to upgrade, to heal, to see forward, and to move forward. So he says, when the world goes crazy, we should be the people who dance, not because we enjoy the craziness, but because we're seeing past it, because we're tethered to the future rather than the past, and because we're tethered to the future even more than a troubled present. In the midst of sickness, we are looking for ways to heal, for ways to prevent the sickness. We are the people who are energized in the midst of it all, knowing that we're creating a better future. Surrounded by confusion, we're the voice that points to a humane and loving future. More than that, we can be seen building that future and inviting others to join the effort. This is what the world needs to see right now, demonstrating that it's possible right here and right now. And like it or not, he says, we are the ones placed to do it. Forward. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 